Thank you, Vandor family and Mrs. Toole for the music this morning. We praise the Lord that uh, we can lift our voices up to Him with music. That gives us an opportunity to share our spirit as well as our mind. If you would pass that, it's passing out the outlines, good. I uh, don't generally share anything about my domestic situation with you, but this week in the course of events, my wife told me, she said something like this, you are acting like a third grader. I don't remember what I had done. Thank goodness. Uh, I, I was kind of interested that her comment was so precise. It wasn't a second grader or fourth grader. It was a third grader. Uh, I got to talking to one of my grandchildren, too, again this week, and uh, I, I started questioning her about some of the things in my sermon, and I think, no, there's a couple of things that maybe ought to make a little bit more clear. And so we're going to do that on a couple of things this morning and then move into some other material as well. So join with me in turning to the Lord and asking for His direction and blessing. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your precious word that has been revealed to us in the Bible. We, uh, we know, Lord, though it's not just an academic exercise, but that we need the leading and illumination of the Holy Spirit to understand and apply the truths of your word. So I just pray now, Lord, as we open your word together, that you would uh, alert our minds, but you would also uh, alert our spirits that we might be sensitive to what you have for us today. And your word might go forth and accomplish that to which you sent it. In Jesus' name, amen. I got to thinking as I was questioning this grandchild about the message that the word abomination and the word desolation to some of our younger members of the congregation are kind of big words. And uh, maybe we ought to talk a little bit. We've been talking so much about the abomination of desolation. Maybe we ought to talk a little bit about those words as we discuss this whole topic. You remember that the term we found in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now, Matthew chapter 24 is in the Olivet Discourse, which is a, a sermon that Jesus gave to his disciples just prior to his crucifixion. And uh, it is filled with prophetic truth. And as we look at that portion of Scripture, it's there that we're able to put together a lot of the chronology that might not be so clear if we did not have that text. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, and also Mark chapter 13, verse 14, the parallel text in another synoptic gospel, we read these words. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, then beware. And it goes on to discuss the uh, severity of that. The abomination of desolation. What is an abomination? Well, an abomination is something that God especially hates. It's a sin or violation against God that is very severe and very extreme. And God doesn't just hate things for no reason. He hates things in a special way because they're particularly divisive and disastrous to us spiritually if we're not aware of them and forsake them and avoid them. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, it gives us some idea of some, some of the things that are an abomination to God, uh, apart from the abomination of desolation that we're talking about today. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 and following, it says this, There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter pass through the fire. 
It's hard to conceive, but people actually uh, got the mindset that they could sacrifice and should sacrifice their children by burning them and offering them up to the, their false gods. What a horrendous thing. And yet today, in the abortion that is across our country, we see the same sort of uh, mentality. People committing a, a sin of convincing themselves that they can do things that are an abomination to God, and there are serious consequences, and many who've experienced that need our prayers because of the consequences emotionally and psychologically that result from that. Or that uses divination, and here's a whole list of things. Divination, observer of times, maybe like an astrologer, an enchanter, a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits. Familiar spirits are spirits of the dead. Uh, or a wizard, or a necromancer. Necromancer is a person who seeks to bring uh, out information through communicating with the dead. All these various things that we on various occasions have defined, uh, we don't talk much about them today, but they are in our midst. They are active. And sometimes it's undercover, but sometimes it's in the open. I don't really remember one right at the moment, but over my time of living in this area, I've gone by a couple of places in different places where there is opportunity to have somebody read your tea leaves or something like that. That's not just a simple uh, kind of fun sort of thing. That is a thing that God calls an abomination because it works against His Word and what He has given us in His Word. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, it says this, And he shall confirm, this is the prince that shall come, which we also know as the Antichrist, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations. Uh, he will spread abominations in the temple by putting up an image of himself there and demanding that it be worshipped. So an abomination is something that God especially hates, that when it's done, brings serious consequences in our lives. Now this is abomination that makes unto desolation, desolate. And so it says, he shall make it desolate. Desolate means an area that is totally destroyed and useless. We think of it normally in terms of land, a land that has been defiled by some kind of contaminant and is totally worthless. Can't grow anything there anymore. It's desolate. Daniel chapter 9 talks about this when it says, For the overspreading of abomination he shall make it, referring to the holy place in the temple, desolate. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4 talks about what was done. It says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself, the Antichrist, above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. A man who has gotten so powerful and so egotistical that he goes into the Holy of Holies and declares himself to be as God. That's uh, kind of the ultimate of wickedness coming out in our society. But we are, we are seeing in our society today uh, people who are advancing causes and philosophies and ways of thinking that are contrary to God's Word. And maybe not in as dramatic and open and visible way as the Antichrist going into the holy place. 
But when people violate the Word of God with their philosophies, their agendas, uh, their, their thinking, they are, in essence, making themselves like God. That they have ideas that can stand over and above the Word of God, or the Word of God is not worth examination or consideration. And those things make desolate. That kind of an attitude, that kind of a way of thinking that develops philosophies that are worldly and contrary to the Word of God or without regard to the Word of God are, too, an abomination of desolation, a thing hated by God that will bring destruction, misery, and, and no, no result. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 11, and then to verse 14 and following, it says, And I beheld another beast. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive the mark in their right hand and in their forehead, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark and the name of the beast or the number of his name, which, of course, is defined as 666. It was hard to comprehend, maybe even as much as 50 or certainly 100 years ago, how something like this could be true. And yet as times pass by in my lifetime, as I think of these things being preached and taught as a young man, and now I'll look at them again as an older man, uh, the technology has advanced to the point where we can even conceive of these sort of things without some kind of dynamic supernatural intervention. We can conceive of them technologically today and see the concept of the possibility of these sorts of things happening. So the abomination of desolation is something that God particularly hates and something that brings desolation or destruction. And in the case of the uh, case here, it's the image that is placed in the holy place that elevates this man, the Antichrist, above God. Well, let's look at the word tribulation for just a moment. A tribulation, it, tribulation is really, I shouldn't say a time, I get thinking about that as I meditate on it. Uh, when you are working on a message and you meditate over it, it seems like as you think it through again and again, you keep seeing things that are not quite the way they should be. And here is one of them. It's not really a time of extreme trouble. It is extreme trouble or suffering. First Samuel 26, 24, David said, Let my life be such much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Tribulation is trouble suffering and all believers should expect tribulation in their lives john 16 says these things have i speaking here of the lord jesus spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace in the world ye shall have tribulation but be of good cheer i have overcome the world and so uh, when we have times of joy and, and don't have tribulation, you know, that's, that's not the norm. 
Uh, we are so conditioned because of the grace of God that has so abundantly blessed our country and our culture that we live in because of His uh, having honored the Word of God in its development in the past that we haven't had tribulation that often comes because people violate God's Word. But we should not grow complacent or be disillusioned when things come into our lives that are trouble and tribulation because the Bible said that in the world we should expect that. That that kind of thing is going to happen. And uh, there is a period of time that is actually called the tribulation. And it is characterized by great tribulation, great suffering and trouble on all of God's people and on everyone that's on the earth. God removes the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit at the rapture of the church. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 6 and 7 talks about this. It says, Now ye know what withholdeth, that he Antichrist might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now, that's kind of confusing language there because when we think of somebody letting something, we think of them releasing or letting something go. But in the context here, the word means, in the context of Scripture, he that letteth is he that holds back, he that protects, who prevents something from happening. And here it's saying that if, if it weren't for the restraining work that God is doing, that the mystery of iniquity, the outworking of men's sin, would become active and very real. Uh, what we see in the tribulation is interesting. It is two things happening. Number one, God has removed the restraining work, and I believe the reference here is to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit, and this has been often misunderstood and sometimes mistaught, the Holy Spirit is not taken from the earth. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. And in the Holy Spirit, He has to be present everywhere at all times. But the nature of His ministry changes as God does different things in the course of history. And today He indwells us, and, and that means He lives within us. Uh, he also empowers us. He gives us power to be able to follow and, and seek after God. He also, through us and in His own personal ministry to various individuals across the earth is a restraining force. He is one that even in unsaved people holds back the full extent to which they would go if they were totally free to do everything they wanted to do. So at the rapture, the ministry of the Holy Spirit would change somewhat and the church will be gone. Uh, we, we underestimate, I think, the influence of the church in our society because uh, we are so overcome many times, and because the principles the Bible teaches are not honored many times, we feel as though we're really not doing anything. But the presence of the church in the world is a, a major influence in restraining evil from all it could be. And that's through the ministry of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives. At the rapture of the church, that will be removed. The witness, testimony, influence of the church in society and in the cultures of the world will suddenly come to a quick end. If you, maybe you've never thought about it, but you need to realize that when the uh, rapture takes place, the witness to God on the earth will be entirely removed. 
God has made it so that it's up to us to reach the world for Christ, not angels or some kind of supernatural powers, but it's up to us to reach the world. And when we're removed, there is left no witness at all, except, of course, then God sends the two witnesses of the tribulation period and reestablishes his testimony on the earth through the two witnesses of the 144,000 sealed Jewish virgins who follow after them. So God reestablishes it. So first of all, at the beginning of the tribulation, the church has been removed and the ministry of the Holy Spirit has changed. And the restraining that is present because the church is here on earth, combined with the Holy Spirit directly ministering in the lives of various individuals to convict them and bring about what God wants to accomplish, challenging them and calling them to the Lord in salvation. Uh, that, that has changed. And uh, that restraining ministry isn't there. Yes, there's still work of the Holy Spirit involved in people that get saved and involved in unsaved people and drawing them to the message of salvation that they might hear it and express their faith in Christ. But the restraining ministry in the culture of the world has been removed. And so that means men can move forward in their wicked deeds without care or concern of where it's going to go. In fact, it's a situation that is much like the period of time between the fall of man and the flood, when men were left to go free in their own desires and wishes, and the whole world fell into chaos. So in the tribulation period, first of all, we see the Holy Spirit's ministry, the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world and through the church is gone. And so the sinfulness of man is allowed to ripen just as a fruit would ripen on a tree. But there's a second thing that happens here, and that is in the midst of this, and this is unique to this period of time in tribulation, God releases his judgment on the world for its sin against him since the fall of Adam. Uh, God had no obligation to allow Adam and Eve to have children and propagate sinful mankind when they turned against God. I mean, God had the choice there of... Uh, killing them, judging them, but instead he gave them a symbol through the animal that they slayed that he was going to send a redeemer. John, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the Proto-Evangelicum, the first announcement that there would be a redeemer come, a, a son of a virgin, as, as it comes out when we understand that text. And uh, he did not bring judgment upon the world as the world deserved, but he delayed the judgment. But there is a time coming when God must, by virtue of his holiness in person, let judgment flow upon this earth for all its many years and decades and centuries and millennia of wicked behavior toward him. And that happens during the tribulation period. And it happens in the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the vile judgments, uh, which are all released. So here we have in this tribulation period two, two principal things going on, and this can help you understand why the tribulation. Why did God put a tribulation in his plan? It's because he's showing us that when God's restraining work of the Holy Spirit through the church and through his direct ministry to people is removed, that man gravitates toward his worst. And we see that if we look in the Bible at what happens with the Antichrist and all the peoples of the world as they, uh, of their own will, choose all these things that result in the wars, rumors of wars, and so forth. But at the same time, there's poured out from heaven the judgments. So we have two different things going on here. We have mankind working out his full sinful self, and we have God pouring out judgment 
on mankind for his sinfulness. And uh, we, we see where this leads. It leads to a situation where the whole, well, as Jesus put it, if the time had not been shortened, the whole world and all mankind would have been destroyed. And that's what we've learned in Isaiah all along, is that God would say, hey, if, if this continues, and if I just put judgment on these people the way they deserve it, that they won't, there won't be anybody left, and all my creation will be destroyed. And they can't do anything about it. There's not one person among them who can intercede for them. There's no one who's adequate. There's no one who's willing to stand up for the people or capable because of my holiness and their sinfulness. And so God decided that he would have to do it himself. And he sent the uh, faithful servant of Isaiah 53, or the Lord Jesus Christ of the New Testament, who was his own son and the three persons of the Trinity. And then he himself offered the individual who became a man and could stand the gap between sinful man and a holy God, the gap that Job cried out for a daysman to intercede. And so God saw that when we left to ourselves, we bring the whole world and creation to destruction. He himself sent his son to die for our sins. And that is the only way that we can be reconciled to God. Because Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that is, that is infinite for the sins, paying for the sins of all mankind. Well, then we have the Great Tribulation. And we... Uh, have looked at this chart many, many times, and we have the church age, the rapture, the tribulation of seven years, the revelation, which all together make the second coming, followed by the millennial kingdom. And so we have the tribulation there between the church age and the millennial kingdom. That, that, the second half of that period of seven years, the second three and a half years, we found is the great tribulation. The Bible talks about it that way. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, it, it says this, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they, is speaking of the souls that are under the altar in heaven, martyred, which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are individuals who were killed in the great tribulation. What is this great tribulation? Well, Daniel 12:1, Revelation 7:14 gives us a turn. Uh, Daniel 12:1 gives us a description. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. That's a description of the last three and a half years of the tribulation. It's going to be intense. It is going to be um, unsurvivable almost. Well, we find in Matthew 24, 21 that we looked at a minute ago, both the term and the description of the period of time. It says, For then, referring to the abomination of desolation, shall be great tribulation. In other words, the great tribulation we talk about is going to take place with the abomination of desolation, which will begin the second half of the tribulation period. We also looked at the chart here of the tribulation period, and, re and remember what we learned was that the Antichrist initially appeared and showed himself as a peaceful, political kind of individual and offered a covenant, which many agreed to, it says many in Daniel, that... Uh, maintained and brought a peace 
And it, it doesn't say, well, he protected Israel, but what we find is that he had to have protected Israel because when he broke the covenant, that's when he turned against Israel and went into the holy place. And so he grew in power and he manipulated subtly with peaceful political methods, we're told. We went through this last couple of weeks uh, until a certain point came and war broke out upon the earth. When God's judgments came and man's sinfulness began to develop, there was uh, rebellion and wars and rumors of wars that broke out across the face of the earth. And the Antichrist was still a man in his political situation just like it is today. And God had limited him. We're going to see this in a minute. This is an amazing truth. Everything that Antichrist did, he did with God's permission and oversight. Where God allowed him to move forward. And so he uprooted three nations we find in Daniel, and he subdued seven more, so he was head of a ten-nation confederacy. Uh, but he still had other powers in the world that he had to deal with. He had the two witnesses who no doubt were establishing, it says Elijah would restore all things, were reestablishing the temple, building the temple for the temple worship during this period of time because it's not a church system now. It's, it's an Old tes Testament, although somewhat different Old Testament, we find out in Ezekiel, uh, during this period of time. And so the two witnesses are there, and they have supernatural power to protect their work and their ministry, and with them develops 144,000 sealed Jews who are like great evangelists who go out throughout the whole world. But you remember at the midpoint of the tribulation, just before the midpoint of the tribulation, the king of the north forms a large coalition of forces, an unbelievably large coalition, and sweeps south through nations to the north of Israel and then into Israel, and it says he came into the uh, promised land, the uh, beautiful land, the term referring to Israel. And then he went further south and he defeated the king of the south who had been his ally in attacking Antichrist in Jerusalem on his way through. And then he took over the king of the south and went into Egypt and was preparing to go into the other nations in North Africa when he heard a rumor from the north and the east. And the north and the east of Egypt, if you think about that, is Jerusalem. And indeed, that's where he went. He turned around in his anger and went back to Jerusalem. Well, what's going on there? Well, it's very likely that he was very angry because the Antichrist, who you know through Scripture received a deadly wound, very likely may have received that deadly wound from the king of the north, and yet he had come back to life. Well, Satan had been released from heaven, and God had allowed these supernatural things to happen. That's why it says in Thessalonians that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. These miraculous powers, uh, it's hard to understand that God would uh, allow some of these things to happen. But you know, we overestimate our own ability to be able to work everything out, figure everything out, and understand everything. And there may be some of you today, or there are individuals out in our society today, who are, are working on a rational basis because that's what we're taught to do. We're taught to pursue education, uh, knowledge, understanding, dialogue, uh, to seek out and make decisions, and that's a good thing. But we have to realize there's a point at which we can be easily deceived. There are masses of people today who are being deceived by philosophies that are being sent out to, uh, through the mass media 
that are being sent out and infecting people's rational thinking so that their rational thinking is not according to reality. Don't overestimate your own ability to figure everything out. Remember, Jesus says that your sin separates you from a holy God. Your society and culture and media will not tell you that. And being separated from a holy God, the only solution is the penalty paid by Jesus Christ for you on the cross, and the media won't tell you about that. Uh, and society won't tell you about that. And that he rose again from the dead the third day and ascended into heaven and intercedes for those who trust him there today. Uh, the Bible says that, and we need to trust the Bible and not our own selves. We need to be careful that we're not caught up in the delusion that not only will be extreme the tribulation, but it's even extreme today as we move toward that tribulation period. And so the uh, great tribulation begins, the Bible says that in the verses we just read, just after the midpoint of the tribulation. The two witnesses are gone. They were killed by the Antichrist and resurrected and went back to heaven, which is a testimony to God's reality, but their influence is gone. The king of the north came to a sudden end as he returned to Jerusalem, and his armies staged themselves between the two seas, which is the Mediterranean and the Dead Sea, and were mysteriously wiped out. And when we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, we find out that fire and brimstone came upon them, and God destroyed them. And that left a vacuum. The king of the north and his massive coalitions were gone. The king of the south and Egypt was gone. The nations in between that had been invaded had been put into disarray. And so Antichrist had a political vacuum that he moved into and went into the temple and took it over and, and set up his uh, kingdom, so to speak. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to imitate God. Set up his kingdom, and it began to function then in the second three and a half years, and that began the great tribulation. And so, uh, every metaphor we look at in scripture breaks down. And having looked at this, and we want to show you this more clearly, our text that we began with in Isaiah chapter 66, verses 7 to 9, says that Zion brought forth a man child before. It's labor, it's tribulation. And that, the tribulation being the second half of the tribulation period, the great tribulation, means that Christ would be born before the second half of the tribulation. And that seems kind of like a ridiculous statement to us because he was born in the past and that hasn't taken place for 2,000 years. It was way before it took place. But we find that happens also in other places in Scripture, especially Isaiah chapter 7, which we've studied before. But then, uh, as we look at that, we find the next phrase in Isaiah chapter 66, which says that as soon as, it, as soon as her travail, Zion's travail began, she brought forth her children. Comparing it to the birth, natural birth of a child, it's saying that just as the labor began to bring forth the release of this child, Israel's labor, just as it began, the child was born. And we found out there that the thinking is that the tribulation was the labor portrayed here. And just as the, the labor began, the great tribulation, which is the abomination of desolation, Zion brought forth her children. And that is a picture of the nation of Israel 
the majority of the people of the nation of Israel realizing suddenly, as they saw the abomination and desolation set up in the holy place, that this Antichrist was a deceiver, that his miraculous abilities were not legitimate, that they need to turn to God, and they need to trust what he has to say. And there's a conversion of many, many, if not most, certainly most, of the Israeli nation, as Romans chapter 11 talks about, uh, the nation being born again. So now, let's look at this. Uh, is this time of the second three and a half years of the tribulation really a time of travail? The, all analogies in Scripture break down at some point. And, and this one does too. You would hope, if you were having a baby, and this were fulfilled, and you brought forth the child as soon as your, your labor began, that your labor would be over because now you got the child, Right? Is what we'd expect naturally. But that's not what happens as this develops. The children are brought forth as soon as the labor begins, but the travail does not stop. The travail develops and continues through the three and a half years. And I want to show you that in our second point today. It takes a look at what Israel is facing now in this second half of the tribulation period. We talked about the abomination of desolation, the concept of tribulation, the great tribulation. Now we want to look at how Israel and how believers are going to be treated, what it's going to be like in the second three and a half years of the tribulation period. And we find this recorded, first of all, in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 and following. Follow as we read that. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, that is not the Virgin Mary. If you look back to Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, you'll find there the account of Joseph and his dreams. Remember Joseph and his dreams? His dreams got him into a lot of trouble. He started talking about his dreams to his siblings. And uh, his first dream had all of his siblings bowing down to him. But his second dream had not only all his siblings bowing down to him, but his mother and father bowing down to him. Where his siblings ultimately were the tribes of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. So that's the ones who were bowing down to him. But the, the parents who eventually bowed down to him were uh, Jacob, renamed Israel, and his wife. So the idea here is not a, a woman, but an, a nation, the Israelite people who are pictured in the father and mother who are described in this way. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered, speaking of Israel bringing forth the Messiah. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon. This is a picture of Satan. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads, this is a picture of Antichrist on the earth who is controlled by Satan. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, this is a picture of some of the things that happened there at uh, Jesus' birth. And you remember there were some people who were very concerned about Jesus' birth. One in particular named King Herod. And King Herod, when the wise men came, uh, 
was ready to do anything he could to kill this apparent competitor to the throne. And so Satan used him to try to kill this Christ child and forbid and prevent God from doing what God planned to do. And so it says, And she brought forth a man-child, same term we find, by the way, in Isaiah chapter 66, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up into God and to his throne. It's kind of interesting that uh, the context here is the kingdom. The, uh, we're in Revelation, in the great tribulation period, and this is being told. And the next thing on God's plan is the kingdom. And, and in this particular verse, it skips over the very crucial, important event, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. Because it has in view here the kingdom. And so she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up into God to his throne. In other words, he was resurrected and went back to heaven where he came from. And, God, and Satan's attempt to destroy him was unsuccessful. Well, then look what it says. It says in verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she hath a place prepared of God, and they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Who is the woman? Well, we already described that by looking at the reference to the verses. The woman is Israel. Israel, as a believing group of people, we'll see as we develop this, as a believing group of people, flee into the wilderness. You notice what he's just done here in the text, the Holy Spirit, in the book of Revelation, John as he writes. He's jumped from the first advent of Christ to the second advent of Christ. The tribulation period, the great tribulation period, and the term here that describes the length of this is half of the seven years of the tribulation. So we have here a picture of the woman fleeing into the wilderness uh, to hide somewhere because the tribulation is going to be so bad if God does not intervene and somehow all of his people, his remnant, will be destroyed. Now, you notice the text skips over more than 2,000 years from the birth of the Savior and his ascension to the hiding of God's people, the children of Israel, in the tribulation period. And we think that may be strange, but wait a minute. Let's go back and look at the text we've been looking at. The Apostle John in Revelation chapter 12 assumes that we already have a familiarity with Isaiah 66, 7 to 9. Remember that text? Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. That speaks of uh, Zion at the first coming, the birth of Jesus Christ. Paraphrase, we'd read it like this. Before Zion entered the great tribulation, she brought forth. Before the great tribulation came, Zion was delivered of Christ. And, of course, that's true. It's in the past. The great tribulation is still in the future. Then we look at verse 8 of chapter 66, and it says, Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? This is an amazing thing. How can this happen, what God is saying here? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. Paraphrase it might read by this. Shall the lamb be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion entered the great tribulation, she brought forth a nation, Israelites, 
poor and of a contrite spirit and trembling at God's word. Those are the words of Scripture. The term poor and of a contrite spirit and trembling at God's word are taken directly out of Isaiah chapter 65, which describes a believer at that time. What an individual who was saved, how you describe them. And so the spiritual rebirth of the nation was separated by 2,000 years. Isaiah took one event and prophesied the birth of Christ and then jumped to over 2,000 years later to prophesy the coming of the great tribulation and the rebirth of the nation of Israel. And so it's not strange when we read in Revelation about Satan that we jump from the first advent to the second advent over many, many years. So we look here and we find the Satan, the Antichrist, wants to destroy God's children, his people, the nation of Israel. Now let's look at another verse in the travail. Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. He persecuted the people of Israel, the woman. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Time one, times two and three, and half a time, half. That's three and a half years, half the tribulation, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. I don't know exactly what happened there, but somehow Satan was able to generate a, a great flow of water in some way that threatened the escape of the people of Israel who were believers as they tried to go to the wilderness to hide and gain protection from the Antichrist. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have a testimony of Jesus Christ. He wasn't able to destroy the woman. And so he turned on all peoples who were turning and putting their faith in God through tribulation period. And now he was out after the remnant of the people of Israel. I mean, certainly there were some that were not among the group that proceeded into the wilderness. And there were other people being saved. 144,000 are still evangelizing the world. There are others that are being saved. But Satan, now that he was cast down to the earth, when he was in heaven, what was he doing? He was accusing the brethren, wasn't he? He was telling God, oh, look at what this guy did and look what that guy did. And for those of us who are believers, Jesus interceded and said, I paid for that. I paid for that with my life on the cross of Calvary. But now Satan had been cast down to the earth. He no longer could appear before God, as is shown in the book of Job, took place in various circumstances. He could no longer do that, and his wrath is great. He's out to destroy all that God wants to do. And so now we find again in Revelation chapter 13, verse 5 and following, that the Antichrist, that the dragon, targets those who are believing, to destroy them. Revelation chapter 13. And there was given to the man a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. That's the Antichrist. And power was given unto him to continue 40 and 2 months. That's the period of the Great Tribulation. And he opens. And notice what it says here. And power was given unto him. Not he had power or he was powerful, but that power was given unto him. It doesn't say God gave him power, but it's clear here that he only could do what God allowed him to do. And he was given power 
to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. He was allowed to speak out uh, his carnal, satanic, controlling message to the people. God allowed him to uh, exhibit his full freedom, which brought forth his great wickedness. And he was given unto him to make war with the saints. Now notice this next phrase. And to overcome them. That should bother you. It's saying that in this great tribulation period, God is giving power to the Antichrist not only to confront and, and seek after and seek to destroy his people, but he's actually giving him power for them to win. And his people to lose, quote-unquote. You know, God tells us again that we should expect tribulation. We should be praising God for the comfortable lifestyles that we live in this time in this country. Yes, there are dangers about us that are moving us in a scary direction. But in the past and at the moment, we have many comforts. And all of us, though, at the same time, are facing some sort of tribulation. Maybe it's a tribulation that's associated with an illness, which all illness, of course, is a result of the curse fallen on man at the garden when sin came into the world. Or it may be an individual who's mistreating us. It may even be a believer who's mistreating us and not following God fully in the way God would have them to follow. We're all experiencing tribulation. And we pray to God that he would remove the tribulation and deliver us out of the tribulation. But God in his word here says that it's his will for whatever to overcome us. Maybe we'll lose that position that we have that's threatened. Maybe we'll lose our life. Maybe we'll lose some close friend or associate and God allows that to happen the Christian life is not an escape from tribulation of the world the Christian life is having Christ who walks with us through the tribulation of the world no matter what happens no matter what happens he allows us from a human perspective to be overcome by the evil one and perhaps destroyed, demoted, or hurt in some way. But he promises to always walk with us and he promises a hope in the future. And we're going to see that with regard to the woman here in just a minute. And so it says, and it was given unto him, guess who gave it? It was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. God is allowing man's sinfulness, which has now been released because the hindering ministry of the Holy Spirit in the church has been removed. He's allowing man's sinfulness to work itself out to show us where it will take you when we don't follow the Word of God. The same, the same principle is true today. If we don't follow the Word of God in our culture and in our government and in the way we live, it will take us to a disastrous, horrible, uh, tribulational end. 
And that's what's happening here. And power is given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If it were not for the ministry of God's people, whether it be the church now or the 144,000 during the tribulation period, uh, Satan's forces would take total control of the world as sin worked itself out and was allowed to move forward without restraint. Well, certainly, the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the great tribulation, is the tribulation or the labor that is being talked about in Isaiah chapter 66. And so we find then at the middle of the tribulation period that all Israel is saved. Now, I want to look at another topic as we turn our attention now back to turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 66 and so you have it in front of you in your Bible it's wonderful to have the outline because sometimes we go from verse to verse real quickly it's hard for you to follow but we don't ever want to get out of the idea of looking at the text in our Bibles because uh, when you, if you're visual like me, once you look it up in your Bible, you have a visual impression of it, where it stands in your particular Bible, and it helps you in your associations and remembering various things. I want to point out to you, now we're back in the text, okay? Isaiah 66, verses 7, 8, and 9 are the verses we've just talked about that talk about the travail and the bringing forth of the man-child and children. And immediately following this are these verses beginning in chapter 66 and that talk about Jerusalem. And the picture that's given to us here of Jerusalem is quite different from what we know as we look at Jerusalem today. It's quite different than the nature of the history of Jerusalem if we trace it back in time. The nation of Israel in 1995 celebrate, not the, the, excuse me, the city of Jerusalem in 1995 celebrated its 3,000th birthday anniversary. Can you imagine that? A city 3,000 years old? And that is only dating from the time when David conquered it and not the time before that in which there was another king there named Melchizedek who was king of a city called Shalom, Salem, which is in Hebrew, peace, the city of peace. We look at Jerusalem today and its history and say, peace? There is no security or peace in Jerusalem at all. It's constantly under threat. And there's constantly trouble on October 25th, 1973, I became a part of one of those times when Jerusalem was a cup trembling unto all the people. It was an event that took place there in 1973 in the fall of the year that uh, was a major mark in the history of Israel because two nations, Syria and Egypt, joined together to form a coalition of Arab nations and they did a surprise attack invading Israel. And world tensions in the midst of what was then the Cold War escalated rapidly and there were grave concerns. Jerusalem, capital of its nation Israel, 
were causing people all around the globe to tremble and react to what they saw happening. In my life, I had just reached a moment a few months before that was a moment that I'd looked forward to for many, many years, and that's when I received my wings in the Air Force to be a navigator, and my honey pinned them on my uniform. That was always a special event when your wife could pin your wings on your uh, uniform that you'd worked for for so long. And so I had become a, a certified navigator, and over the next three or four months, I was in upgrade school to be a navigator on a B-52. And finally, in the fall of 1973, I reached my assigned base, K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base, in the northern peninsula of Michigan. And I began training there to be checked out to be on uh, a SAC alert crew. SAC was a strategic air command that held the B-52s and ran their operations. And at that time, we were sitting alert. We always had on the base four or five bombers that were loaded with nuclear weapons ready to go to war on an instant's notice. And we would sit alert for like a week at a time, and uh, there'd be periodic alarms to test us, to try us out, in which we would uh, hear a klaxon and have to get to the aircraft and get the engine started as if we were going to taxi and take off, and they would keep a record and watch what happened, make sure everything was the way it should be. Well, I hadn't been assigned to a crew yet. I'd been assigned to a crew, but I hadn't been given uh, an alert status yet. And I was uh, coming back from leave to my home there at K.I. Sawyer. But things were becoming very hot in Jerusalem and Israel. This Arab coalition had invaded in what came to be known as the Yom Kippur War in 1973. And things were very severe. And the United States and the Soviet Union were supplying opposite parties in this conflict. The United States was openly supplying Israel with supplies, and the USSR was openly supplying the Arab states. And the tension grew over the entire situation. And there became a concern that was so great that the DEFCON, or defense condition, of United States was moved to DEFCON 3. Now, most people don't know about DEFCON, but DEFCON stands for Defense Def Condition Con. And our government set up such that if war is approaching or there's a fear of war approaching, they'll, they'll change the DEFCON. You'll go from DEFCON 5, which is peaceful, to DEFCON 4 to DEFCON 3. And when the, the president and his consul declare a DEFCON level, that automatically means, according to prior plan, that certain things are done. Certain things are prepared for war. And we went to DEFCON 3 there that fall as this developed. And what happened is the Syrian tanks were overrunning the Israeli fortifications in the Golan Heights. And it looked as if it would be likely that they would drive straight into Jerusalem. Israeli losses were so great that soldiers were authorized to attach nuclear warheads to nation's Jericho missiles. And the United States in DEFCON 3 generated all of their B-52s all around the world for war nuclear war. And every fly flyable airplane on our base 
was assigned a crew and they began loading in nuclear weapons. The security forces moved around the perimeter of the base and the perimeter of the flight line. And there was, at, in normal times, one alert area over here where there were four or five aircraft ready to go at any time. And now the whole flight line was being generated in the middle of the night with nuclear B-52s ready to fly to war. I hadn't been assigned to crew. I've been assigned to crew yet, but I hadn't been certified in my EWO orders. This is a picture of my guys in, the, in my crew. It actually was a little bit later than this particular night. But uh, some guys, we together, and I was taking the picture so you get to see what I looked like. We together were the crew of the B-52 that we flew. The guy on the left is Vince Rausch. He was my radar nav that worked with me. Then comes Dick Verberg, who was the co-pilot. Tracy Heater was the pilot. The next guy's name I've forgotten over the years. He was the EW, the Electronic Warfare Officer. His job was to jam any missiles or anything that was so, uh, zeroing in on us electronically to shoot us down. That was his job. And on the right is Charlie. Charlie was the gunner. He controlled the tail gun of the aircraft that uh, guarded that part of the zone of our uh, airplane that was very susceptible. So we formed this crew. Our crew was told, as I arrived back from leave, that we were going to be assigned an aircraft as soon as they were ready. But I hadn't certified yet. I had to take an emergency war order flight plan, sortie plan, review it, and brief the commanding officer, a colonel, uh, of that sortie to show that I understood it and I was capable of executing it as a navigator of the airplane. So I was called up about 10 o'clock, I believe, as I arrived home from leave and told to report to squadron headquarters. And I was given from the vault uh, an EWO sortie, emergency war order sortie, which was a nuclear sortie that would be flown from K.I. Sawyer north over Canada where we would refuel from KC-135s and then over the pole and into the heart of Soviet Russia to drop four nuclear bombs and launch two nuclear missiles. And so they generated the aircraft, and that morning early, the 26th of October, 1973, the day of my 25th birthday, I became an active member of an EWO sortie crew. That's the compartment of the navigators, uh, a little later picture than when I was there in a very well-taken professional photograph. But it shows the radar nav on the left and the navigator where I sat on the right, and uh, it was called the black hole because there were no windows down there. And we had all of our equipment there to navigate and get the airplane to its target. We had all the codes that would be certified. If indeed it was true, a war going on after we launched, they would issue codes that gave us either go or no go. And we were ready to go to war. But God intervened. And the situation resolved itself. But the trembling of Jerusalem was very real. But that's all going to change. We, we've talked about what conditions were like in Israel. Uh, Zechariah tells us what it's going to be like in Israel in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. It says there, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem, and in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. Now this isn't the, today what I experienced. This is just a format of what will happen in the tribulation period. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. 
though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. You know, on two different occasions, well, in two occasions, the city of Jerusalem has been raised in history. And in two occasions in the future, it will come to near destruction again. They are what? What's the first one? When all the world gathers around Jerusalem to destroy it, when's the first one? In the future. Armageddon. And when is the second one? At the end of the millennium. Exactly right. It's, they've been raised twice in the past, 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came down, and 586 when the Babylonians came down and totally leveled Jerusalem. And in the future, it will nearly happen again as the nations of the world surround Israel at the end of the tribulation period with the Battle of Armageddon, and again at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. Remember, those are two separate battles. At the end of the Millennial Kingdom, when they will try to destroy Jerusalem again. But look at what God has to say. We've heard about all this negative stuff. Now watch. God is going to say, this is my plan. I have a plan that is very bright and real for you to look forward to in the midst of all your tribulation. He's talking to Jews here, the nation of Israel. But the principle and reality is true the same for believers as revealed in New Testament revelation. We're not going to be able to cover all that New Testament, but the concept is the same. And he says, oh, rejoice ye with Jerusalem. And be glad, chapter 66, verse 10. And be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. That ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations. That ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Wow. And the glory of the Gentiles, like a flowing stream, then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the land, hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. A beautiful day is coming for Jerusalem. Now, take this, take, just take these verses. I, I know I'm trying to portray this, and I'm not sure I'm doing a good job as I'd like to do anyway. With the old Jerusalem we know today and the new Jerusalem that God is promising his people. And by the way, you can find these various uh, descriptions of the new Jerusalem all through the book of Isaiah and elsewhere in Scripture. God's promise for the future, a Jerusalem that is secure, at peace. Notice, notice some of the phrasing here. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her. People who today yearn for peace in Israel and in Jerusalem. People all over the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles, and even unsaved people who want to resolve the conflict because it threatens their peaceful, uh, wealthy, happy lifestyle. People that mourn for the situation, it will come to an end because they will be rejoicing. And it says here uh, that they may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolation, the breasts of her comfort, that she may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. In other words, the whole world 
is going to be blessed with the abundance that Jerusalem will provide. The picture here is of a mother and nursing child. It was uh, my wife nursed all of our children in, and had the opportunity to do that, and it was very, very precious. If you ever watched a newborn or just a young child uh, nursing, he, he does it with great vigor, and there's a tender, special relationship between mother and child in those kinds of experiences. And the book here, the, the Word of God, this Holy Spirit, is trying to use this very precious, loving, and yet common experience for the most part for families and women to portray a very tender and real relationship that will exist between and not just God, but the world as a whole. Look at the next verse. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river. Uh, not like a pond or a pool, but peace like a river. I grew up about two blocks from the St. Joe River on Indiana Avenue around the corner from, uh, from Merrifield Park. Uh, and the river flies. You know, I can't ever remember a time that river wasn't flowing. Rivers just flow and flow and flow. And that's a picture here, a river. Not a, not a small vein of water, but a river, which is a major vein of water. And that vein of water is flowing, and it flows forever. And so it's, there's, there's richness, there's supply. Peace to her like a river. Peace that's ongoing, flowing all the time. And the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Wait a minute. How do the Gentiles think about Israel today? Virtually every Gentile, which is all the nations of the world, hate Israel and would like to see her pushed into the sea, as the terminology goes, with the exception of very, very, very few. But in the kingdom era, the Gentiles will praise and go to and from and experience the blessing and contribute to the blessing of the city of Jerusalem there in Israel. The glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Now they use their glory or their abundance to try to destroy Israel, but they will use it to try to glory. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides and be dandled upon her knee. People will bring the Jews back to their land like they were a treasured child. And it says, Their comfort is so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in here from a nursing mother to a, uh, a child who is grown and a mother who is not nursing but is the adult supervisor or person who uh, is very influential in the life of his child. As a mother, as a child grows older, a mother's counsel is valuable and helpful. It should be to you young people as you grow older. And so here is another picture now, not of a mother with a baby, but of a mother who is working with an adult child. And that's the concept here in the language. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and you should be comforted in Jerusalem. Comforting and directing and loving her son. So shall it be, Jerusalem, with the people. And when ye see this, your bones shall flourish like an herb. Uh, bones refer to the central constitution of man, the inward part. And you know, see, they'll be strong like the fresh grass that pops out of the ground in the spring of the year. 
says here, uh, ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem, and when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb, and the hand of the Lord shall be known toward his servants, and his indignation toward his enemies. We constantly, in the book of Isaiah, read about the blessing that God has promised for his people. But we constantly have a footnote, a secondary clause. The secondary clause being, and his indignation toward his enemies. When God brings his blessing to his people, he necessarily brings judgment to the wicked. The people are presented to him in the blood of Christ who love him and live for him. And when they're blessed and forgiven because of the death of Christ on the cross, those who've rejected the death of Christ on the cross face judgment and eternal destruction. And destruction there doesn't mean ceasing to exist. It means destruction in terms of any hope for uh, their own plans or intentions in the future. They, they suffer in a lake of fire for eternity. This is a, an amazing text here. And you notice it's been very carefully placed where it's placed because it's talking about just when we get done identifying the tribulation period and the nation of Israel believing and going into that period through the travail, when they come out of that travail, they'll enter into the kingdom, which is the millennial kingdom, and there they will have a Jerusalem that is at peace forever. As we close, I want to point out some verses to you about tribulation. John 3, which we always already looked at, says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, compared to the time of the tribulation, and compared to many people in the world, we're very blessed. We all face some tribulation, though. And it's true and it's appropriate that even though the tribulation that we may face in comparison to what some people face in the world doesn't seem like much, to each of us who are going through that tribulation personally, it's a big deal. Tribulations that we face are hard. Uh, as I said before, health situations, employment situations, family relationships, uh, friends' relationships, society, culture, all, all the different things that can bring trouble as uh, God is denied and people act according to their own thinking, which is what we saw happening here in the tribulation. Acts chapter 14, 22 says, confirming the souls of his disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Now, people readily apply that to themselves, and there's a truth there. Just, just as the same, we have to go through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. Of course, we're not going directly to the kingdom of God. We're going into the church, then we're going to be raptured, and then we're going to come back and be a part of the kingdom. So in a sense, we're in the, entering toward the kingdom now, but we're in the church, and the church is going to merge with the kingdom at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So we're headed for the kingdom, but right now we're in the church, and we need to keep those two things straight. Talk to these people in Acts, he was anticipating the coming of the kingdom. So what he's saying here is, what he's saying here is that we must go through much tribulation to enter into the kingdom of God. He's telling his people 
who are going to be in the millennial kingdom, in the tribulation and saved in the tribulation, that there is much trouble that they'll face before they enter into the kingdom. Look at Romans 8.35. Okay, tribulation. We all have tribulation. But now there's some exhortations about dealing with tribulation. It says in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or shall tribulation uh, it does not matter how big your tribulation is how long it lasts where it takes you it cannot separate you from the love of God Romans 12 12 rejoicing in hope that's rejoicing for the people of Israel looking to Jerusalem. Their hope is that new Jerusalem. And, uh, and in the midst of their tribulation, time of the tribulation period, it's saying, keep your eyes on what's ahead. Jerusalem's ahead, and it's not the Jerusalem you've known in the past. It's a Jerusalem that will be different from anything you have ever known. I left out here uh, one little thing. Let me insert at this point. Jer Jerusalem, which is named peace throughout its history, has seen very little peace. According to a secular historian, it has been a, in at least 118 conflicts. It has been raised at least twice, has been besieged 23 times, and has had at least five separate periods of violent terrorist attacks in the past century. But not the New Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven on the new heaven and the new earth will be a place of peace. So it says, be patient in tribulation. Bear under, stick with it, keep your eyes on God's future. That's what this prophecy concept is all about. God's telling you that in the end it's all going to work out such that the people of God will be blessed even though for the moment they may even be overcome by the tribulation. The blessing is coming. Second, second Colossians 1.4 Who comforted us in all our tribulation. Look to God. Whatever your tribulation is, that He would comfort you. First Thessalonians 3.4 For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation even as it came to pass. And you know. Paul talks about tribulation a lot in the New Testament. We all face tribulation. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes and just meditate with me for a moment. What is the great tribulation in your life? Are you struggling with believing the Bible and admitting that you are a sinner like the Bible says you are and acknowledging that God sent His Son because there was no other alternative and that He died on the cross for you and shed His blood for you and was resurrected from after three days. Are you struggling with asking Him to save you through that shed blood of Christ? That could be the tribulation that you're facing right now. And you can end that tribulation by just putting your trust and faith in Christ. Or maybe your tribulation is of some other nature, a, a situation in your life, a condition, a health, whatever it may happen to be. 
God says, be patient in tribulation. There is a hope ahead. God, even though he sometimes allows the tribulation to overcome us, so it appears from a human perspective, from a human earthly perspective, we're overcome, yet he'll be with us through it all, and in the end he will deliver us to a glorious future. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Behold, I prepare a place for you, that where I go you may go also. Even in being overcome by tribulation and our life being destroyed, we immediately have an elevation to heaven to be with our Savior. And then a bright future. Do you have a future today? If you don't, you need to trust Christ. You need to come forward and, and we'll give uh, an individual counselor to help lead you through or come to Pastor Westgore or myself. What tribulation are you facing? Can you give it over to the Lord? Can you say, Lord, I'm going to be patient. I'm going to do all I can to seek your face and to allow your spirit to work through me to resolve this tribulation. But as tribulation comes and I have no control over it, Lord, I'm just going to be patient. I'm just going to trust you and bear under so that you can work out your will through it all. Father in heaven, help us to understand the concept of tribulation. And to understand our need to trust you. And to be comforted and encouraged that you will never leave us. And to realize that whatever the outcome of the tribulation, there is a bright future ahead. Lord, convict and work in the hearts of your people and those who need to respond to your message and become one of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.